turn over to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, and I just want to read for us so it's kind of fresh in our minds, our text. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowds were put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. This morning, we want to look at Jesus' power over death. It's kind of a two-part message. Last week was part one, and this is part two. Uh, if you look in your, uh, in your Bibles to Roman, or Hebrews chapter two, you can see there that we have a message clearly from God to us that Jesus has, through um, His power, um, brought an end to death. It says, Jesus, in verse 14 and 15 of Hebrews 2, Jesus, that through death he might destroy him, which is Satan, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, the writer is saying that we spend our entire lives subject to the bondage of the fear of death. There's not a person in this room pending the Lord's return who's not going to die one day, physically. The longer we live, the more inevitable it seems, and it becomes clearer to us that death looms on the future. All you have to do is go see your doctor. And what's he do? He pulls a chart out. Oh, last month, last year or whatever your last appointment was, your blood pressure was this. Do you know it's this? Or your cholesterol is this? Or do you know this is going on? Or you gained this weight? Or all these things. It just shows us that inevitably we're pressed forward to that wall of death. But the good news is Christ has come to deliver us from the fear of death. And that's what that scripture talks about. We no longer live in fear of death as believers in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't look forward to dying. i got a lot to say before I die. But, you know, part of that is I look forward to what happens after death. I don't look forward to the process of dying. I'm praying it will be quick and speedy, a car wreck or a motorcycle accident, something quick. Just boom, get it over and I'm in the presence of the Lord. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you get cancer. Sometimes you linger on for months, maybe years, looking forward to dying. And for most of the world, we look around us, there's kind of a, a fear inside of death. Um, probably one of the most prominent people that the world looks at 
when he was alive, he was kind <clears> of <throat> lifted up as an icon of, you might say, peace, was Mahatma Gandhi. And he basically seemed to have this tranquil life. And everybody looked at that, and he found that in Hinduism. And there's a quote, 15 years before his death, here's what he said. I must tell you, in all humanity, that Hinduism, as I know it, entirely satisfies my soul, fills my whole being, and I find solace in the Bhagavad and the Upanishads, and that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. So he said he was utterly at peace, comfortable in his Hinduism. Well, someone recorded this right before his death. Here's what he said. He wrote this. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 15 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. Just a footnote there. That kind of is a, is a term that comes out of Pilgrim's Progress, the book. So maybe he was reading Pilgrim's Progress. Who knows? But he says, I find myself in the slew of despond. All about me is what? Darkness. I am praying for light. See, even Mahatma Gandhi, who seemed to have his life in order, saw his confidence falling apart as he faced the inevitable physical death. People do kind of crazy things when they die or when they look forward to dying. Um, there's one illustration of a Turkish watchmaker. He wrote out in his orders upon his death, he wanted to have his burial site close enough to the graveyard watch house there where the, 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 the graveyard watcher would take care of things. Caretaker, I guess is the word I'm looking for. He wanted it close enough so that when he was buried, he wanted to have an eight-inch hole in the top of the uh, casket, all right, so people could look in there. And he wanted to have an electrical switch inside the casket that ran over to the guardhouse, like a doorbell kind of a thing, just in case he woke up or he wasn't dead and they buried him by accident. Not only that, he wanted a little light bulb inside that little window in his casket, and his orders were that light had to be remain on for seven days. After seven days, if they came back and he was still dead, then it was okay to turn it off. They could unhook the wire, and he knew that that was it. People do silly things. But we see death all around us. In Brazil, there's one mausoleum, basically. It's a 39-story graveyard. I mean, there's a lot of skyscrapers in, in that area of the country, that area of the world, because of the, the land use and things like that, so they tend to build up in the bigger cities. Well, there's one down there that's 39 stories high. It doesn't hold living bodies. It holds dead bodies. It has a heliport, and they fly the dead bodies in, and they have several churches in there and all sorts of things to accommodate. It can hold up to 147,000 corpses. Everywhere we look, you can go up here on Skyline Drive there and, and see a cemetery. And tombstone after tombstone after tombstone. Probably one of the, I got a couple photographs here, one of the largest uh, cemeteries in the world is the Valley of Peace in Najaf, Iraq. It's one of the world's largest cemeteries. 
Go to the next photo there. It covers an area of almost three square miles. Just look at that. They're all graves. Next photograph. It holds over five million, probably five and a half million people now that are buried there. We see that all around us. People are buried. Well, it's, it's great to know that because death looms on the horizon of every individual's life, that Jesus came to conquer death. He came to talk, conquer death. Turn over with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Gospel of John. And he made this very clear. John chapter 5. Look at... Verse, well, begin verse 21. For the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Jump down there to verse uh, 24. Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has what? Everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but, but, but has passed from death into what? Life. And he says once again, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So Jesus was saying that because the Father has life in himself, I am God just as much as the Father is God and therefore I have the ability to conquer death. Over in chapter 11 of John, verse 25 and 26, just turn your Bible a couple pages over, John 11, 25 and 26, Martha came and wanted to know about the resurrection of the dead, and he answers her in verse 25, he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And more... And, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her, do you, do you believe this? See, the Father has the power over death. He's given that power to the Son, and therefore Jesus Christ claims to have power over death. Turn over a couple more pages in your Bible to John chapter 14, verse 19. We're just establishing here that Jesus claimed to have power over death. John 14, verse 19, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because what? I live, you will live also. And you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57, we read part of that this morning. It talks about the Apostle Paul talking about the resurrection of Christ, and because of his resurrection, he took the sting out of death and gave us victory over the grave. And ultimately, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, the Messiah is going to bring about an eternal state, an eternal kingdom. And it says of that kingdom, there will be no more death. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to seeing this all come to fruition. Even back in Matthew 11, verses 3 to 5, John the Baptist he was in prison and he heard about Jesus' ministry and he heard about all these things that were going on and he sent some of his disciples to Jesus Christ and they asked him this question. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? In Matthew 11. And Jesus answered. And here's the answer he gave to John the Baptist's disciples. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and the things that you see. 
And John will understand who I am. And what are those things? He gives a list. He says the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and what? The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, all those things are credentials of a Messiah that were foretold back in the Old Testament. So when Christ came, he, it wasn't good enough for him just to show up and say, yeah, I'm the dude you're looking for. No, people said, well, how do we know? How can we be sure? And so he's strategically placing these miracles in the different Gospels to prove that he is who he said he was. Now, he wants us to understand that back to Matthew. He's shown us so far that Jesus had power over disease in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. He had power over disorders, the physical, the spiritual, the moral disorders that were going on in the, in the culture there in chapter 8, 23 through 9, 17. Now we find ourselves in this third set of miracles. Remember, there's three sets of three miracles. We're in the third set, beginning in chapter 9, verse 18. And he shows us that he has the power over death. So he's conquered disease, he's conquered disorder, and now he's going to show us that he can even conquer death. He gave sight to the blind. He can give hearing to the deaf. He made the dumb to speak. He can even raise the dead. And what he's doing is he's laying out for everybody to see in his day, in ours, through the, the record, recorded account, his credentials of being the Messiah. And he's doing that as a preview. He's not saying, okay, because I can raise the dead, everybody can raise the dead. He's not doing that. This was a very, very special miracle. And even when he gave that power to the disciples, I don't believe it was for anything other than establishing the church. Some people go around saying today they have the power to raise the dead. I'd, I'd call them to task on that. I'd say prove it. Let's go. I got a, I got a couple graves I want to take you to. See, I mean, a lot of that stuff is a ruse. It's 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 not true. God doesn't need a, a person to do any of these things. He can do it all by himself. But he was just giving them a preview of what was going to happen in the kingdom, because he was claiming to be the king of that coming kingdom. And everybody was saying, well, how do we know? And he said, let me just give you a preview. And so, beginning in verse 18 there of chapter 9, first, he raised this dead girl. He had life restored. She had life restored to her. The second miracle of these three was he gave sight to blind eyes. Well, what was restored there? The sight was restored. And then the third miracle in this set of three was basically giving voice to one who was dumb. He, he restored someone's speech. And in each miracle that we see there, it's an illustration of his power over death. In the physical body, obviously raising a body out of, out of deadness shows you have power over death. But even in giving someone back their sight, it shows that he has power over dead eyes. Giving someone back their voice, that he has power over their, their dead vocal cords. And so he's clearly laying this out. But we want to not so much focus on the miracles as we said last week, but we want to focus on how Jesus is dealing with the people around him as he goes through all these miracles. And last week, as a pattern, we, we looked at, first of all, Jesus was accessible 
Jesus was accessible. In verse 18, it says, while he spoke these things unto them. And we pointed out that Jesus was very busy right then in this conversation with the Pharisees. He was dealing with the Pharisees. He was dealing with the disciples from John the Baptist who came. And they started asking him about fasting. All these people were around him. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a mass of humanity following him. That's just the way it was. Because they saw him doing incredible things. They wanted to be there. And you see that throughout the book of Matthew. The multitudes followed him. The great multitudes followed him. You see it over and over and over again. And here he is preaching. He's teaching. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's doing all these incredible things. And it's just interesting to me, and it's just a blessing to me to know that this God who has all this power is accessible. I mean, doesn't that bless your heart that our God is accessible? That He's not some distant God, the God of the deists who claimed that God came and wound everything up and then took off? <laughs> or He's not the God of the, old, the, the, of the pagans of the Old Testament? Remember when they had their big showdown? That He's not the God that, you know, when they were crying out and crying out to their pagan God to answer, one of the prophets said, well, maybe He's on vacation. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be answering. Maybe He's asleep. Maybe you'd better go wake him up. You remember that story? See, our God is not so. Our God is very much accessible to us. That's why Jesus came into the world. He became God incarnate. He became God accessible to us. That was the first point. Second point was Jesus was available. And we saw that in verses 18 through 19. It says there, there came a certain ruler. Not only was he accessible to the crowds... But he was available to the individuals. And we're going to finish up this story today, but we see Jesus here pulling out of the crowd a certain man who was a ruler and a certain woman who had an issue of hemorrhaging. See, he wasn't one of these guys that says, oh yeah, you can come to my meetings. And then after the meeting's over, they go through a little back door and they're gone. You never see him again. Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus said, no, I want to be available to individuals. You can confront me individually. You can move around my life. You can see how I work. Remember, he touched a leper. He went to the home with a centurion who had a paralyzed servant. He was the one who touched a woman with fever. And he even dealt with those demon-possessed, that demon-possessed uh, those, those individuals. He healed a paralytic. And here he meets a father who has a dying daughter and a woman who has this severe hemorrhaging of her body. See, he's always available to the individual. And there's two things we looked at last week that makes him available to us. First of all, was both of these people had a great need. They had a great need. This guy's daughter basically was dead. If you read the different gospel accounts... Probably when he left to come to visit and get Jesus, she wasn't dead yet. But you read the other gospel accounts, it says that while he was talking to Jesus on his way to the home, the, the, the keepers of the house come and they say, Hey, Master, don't worry about it. She's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. There's no need for him to come. She's already dead. And Matthew just kind of condenses the story for us. His daughter was dead. And this poor woman had this hemorrhaging for 12 years. 
This ruler was the kind of the ruler of the synagogue of the day. He, he basically represented everything that was against who Jesus was and his ministry. And yet, something touched his heart. And he realized his need could only be met through his faith in Christ. And that's why Jesus said, this is great faith, because he said, even though my, de- my daughter is now dead, come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. I mean, I don't have faith like that. And it says that he worshipped him. Middle of verse 18. That man had a, a faith that saved him, that allowed him to worship God. Worship is one of Matthew's favorite words. But you know what? Sometimes we misunderstand worship. We think of worship. If I ask you, what do you think of when you think of worship? A lot of people all think of music. Or they think of this, or they think of that. Well, let's look at this worship for a second. Turn over to Matthew 18. This word, worship. Because Matthew records basically for us that worship can be true worship, but worship can also be phony worship. In Matthew 18, verse 26, remember here Jesus is telling a story of a man who owed so much, he, there's no way he could ever pay it. You know the story. And he came and it says that he worshipped the Master in 1826. Please forgive me, I'll pay it all. And the Master forgave him. And what did he do? He turned around and went out and found somebody that owed him a couple pennies, basically. And threw him in prison until he paid him hypocrite. See, the man was a phony. Even though it says that he fell down and he worshipped him, that worship was not real. It wasn't authentic. So, it shows me that worship can be faked. Worship can be something just purely external. And I don't know if you ever turn on the TV and watch some of this stuff that they call worship today. I mean... I saw something a couple of weeks ago. I just thought it was the craziest thing. I don't even know if I can explain it for you. It was just so weird. They had this big building, and they had people with like pieces of paper down on the on the floor in certain areas, and they were drawing. They were just scribbling stuff. Then you had other people that were up on the platform. This lady, she was kind of dressed in some kind of spandex, looked like a workout outfit, and she was singing about, talking about um, singing. They were playing music. And she was talking about dancing. And she went through all the ways that you could dance in this worship setting. And they're playing this music and she's going, I believe that you could skip. Let's skip. And they're all skipping. I mean, everybody in the entire place. It's just like, it was like a madhouse. And then leaping, let's leap. And they're leaping and they're running into each other. It was crazy. And I thought, what would possess people to think that this kind of worship is honoring to God? It's phony. Well, Matthew 20, verse 20, turn over a couple pages there. We see here, we, we know this story. John and James basically decided on their own that they wanted to sit on the right and uh, left-hand side of Jesus in his kingdom. That's a pretty bold statement, I would say. I mean, you know, that, that's that's like being, you know, chosen for a, 
a player on a football team and say, well, yeah, well, uh, now, now where does the quarterback, where's the quarterback's locker? You know, I mean, without even trying out or nothing. I mean, it's just so presumptuous of them. And they didn't even man up and go to Jesus themselves. They went to their mommy. Mommy, please come see if Jesus will let us sit on the right. And, the, and so it says there that she came worshiping him in verse 20, desiring a certain thing of him. See, what kind of worship is that? It's self-seeking worship. So worship can be phony, it can be self-seeking, but it can also be real. It can also be genuine. And I believe that this leader in Matthew came with that kind of a worship. Um, in, in Matthew 14, verse 33, you see here that Jesus had just walked on the water. And when he got into the boat, it says that the people who were with him, worshipped him. They said, Thou art the Son of God. See, that's true worship. That's the real deal. In chapter 15, verse 21, it says, Jesus departs into the borders of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, excuse me, and there comes a Gentile woman. Now, if you know anything about the culture, Gentiles and Jews just don't mix, okay? It's like oil and water. And she says, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Interesting term she uses there. She goes, my daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. Matthew 15, 21. And it says he didn't answer her a word. He's setting her up for an illustration is what he's doing. Not being rude here. And the disciples are observing this. And they looked over and they said, you know, send that woman away. She's bugging us. You know, he doesn't want to deal with her. Send her away. And then he answered, he said, I am not sent, but to her, he answered, he said, I am not sent, but onto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, he was showing how important it was first for his ministry before it went to the Gentiles that it first go to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, to offer the kingdom to the Jews. Verse 25 says, but she came persistently and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. See, her her. Her faith, her worship was genuine. And Jesus, kind of by ignoring her, forced her to realize the reality of her faith. And he said to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Do I owe you any obligation? A Gentile? See, he's setting her up. And she said, true, truth, Lord. In other words, you're right. You're exactly right. I don't have anything to argue with you. I don't deserve anything, she says. See, that's a meek spirit. That's an attitude that comes before God with a need. Not self-seeking something. She goes, I don't deserve anything, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And what was his answer? He said, oh, woman, great is your faith. See, that's real worship. It's not phony. It's not self-seeking. She knew she didn't deserve anything. She didn't come to God demanding anything. See, that's what Christianity has turned into. We come to God and we, we want you know more money in our wallet and we want a bigger house on a hill and we want a nicer car and a better job and we just demand all this stuff thinking that God's some divine Santa Claus. When in fact, we don't deserve anything. What we truly deserve from God is His wrath, is His punishment, is to spend eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. So I don't know if you want to go to God and say, give me what I deserve. <laughs> that may not be a good bargain to make. 
You're going to come definitely on the short end of the stick on that one. Back in chapter 8, verse 8, the centurion said, My servant is sick, and you just say the word and he'll be well. Great faith. Great faith. Leads to true worship. Here's this man that he's dealing with, this, sin, this, this, this ruler of the synagogue. And he came and he worshipped him. His worth, worship was authentic. And by the way, whenever Jesus used the word faith with his own disciples, with his own disciples, those who spent the most time with him, it's not in a favorable manner. He's always questioning their faith. Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Chapter 8, verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 31. Ye have little faith. Chapter 16, verse 8. Why ye have little faith? Over and over and over again. He looked at his disciples and he said, you guys have little faith. So he's pointing out in Matthew 9, this, this leader of the local synagogue has a deep need, but he also has a faith that is a genuine faith. It's a saving faith. And that's why Jesus responded the way he did back in Matthew 9, verse 19. He said he rose, he rose up and followed him. Just dropped everything. I mean, mid-conversation with the Pharisees. He's dealing with John's disciples. He's got all these people around him. This guy comes to him with a sincere faith. He says, okay, let's go. Boom. And they're off. Amazing. Amazing. He was available to the individuals. And so here, you can get the picture. Now they, they leave this, this place where they're at there, and they have all these people following him. The, 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 uh, the local Jewish synagogue leader, he's Jairus, he's leading the way. And Jesus is behind him, his disciples are behind him, and behind him there's a massive crowd following Christ through the streets as he walks to this ruler's house. And while he was on the way, we discovered that Jesus is not only accessible, available, but he's also touchable. And that's what we saw in verses 20 to 22 last week. This woman reached out, it says in verse 20, she'd been diseased with the issue of blood for 12 years, and she literally grabbed a hold of one of his tassels hanging from his garment, the hem of his garment. She had some kind of hemorrhage. We don't know, tumor, it doesn't say. But we knew, we, we know from Scripture that when someone is in that state, when that, they're in that medical condition, they're, they're ceremonially unclean. So you can't go to synagogue. You can't worship with your people. You can't be in your family because you would contaminate the rest of the family. You can't have a husband. She was all by herself, ostracized from society. She reaches out and she grabs a hold of him. In verse 22, it says, Jesus turned around. He saw her and he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you well. It says the woman was made well from that very hour. See, he responded to that. He was touchable. He was sensitive. He was responsive. She just wanted to reach out and touch him, thinking that somehow she had the faith that that would heal her. It's kind of superstitious in a way, but it was genuine. And God honored it. Just like the ruler who wanted his little girl to live. Kind of a selfish motive in a way. Why do you want, why do you want me to come to your house? Well, I want you to raise my daughter. <laughs> but his faith was genuine. And Jesus honored that. 
Now turn over to the Gospel of Luke because we have a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. And it's not included in our story in Matthew, but there's some important things that, for the matter of this morning, I just want to spend a little time here in Luke chapter 8. And uh, if you look at, at, at verse 44 of Luke chapter 8, it picks up the same story. It's telling just the same story in a different way. It's kind of like we both see an accident on the freeway, and the police come up and interview us and say, well, what did you see? Well, the red car spun out and then hit the blue car, and then somebody else, well, no, the yellow car went over. You know, it's the same thing. You're seeing the same thing. You're just telling the story in a different way. That's what's going on here. So Luke 8, verse 44. It says, a woman came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood blood stopped. Immediately. See, Matthew doesn't necessarily record that. They have this little conversation going on. But it says in Luke that as soon as she touched the hem of his garment, the little tassel hanging off the back of him, she was healed immediately. And it says there, and Jesus said, who touched me? Turned around and said, who touched me? Now, he's in a big crowd, right? This is the, you know, want to get away moment that we talked about. You know, everybody's, you know, kind of following Jesus. All of a sudden, this lady reaches out and she's kind of shamed by the condition that she's in and everything. But she reaches out and all of a sudden, all the eyes are on her. Who grabbed me? And nobody really owned up to it, apparently. Says, all denied it. Peter and those who were with him, his disciples, said, What are you nuts? Master, the multitude's thrown press against you, and you say, Who touched me? Look at all these people. How are we supposed to know who touched you? See, but Jesus knew the difference between being casually bumped up against from someone who was just curious in this crowd and somebody who had a sincere faith. He knew the difference because he was God. And in verse 46, look at this. Jesus said, look, someone touched me. Here's why I know. For I perceive power going out from me. Wow. What do you mean, I perceive power going out? I mean, stop and think about what that says about Christ. Stop and think about what that says about the Son of God. Jesus Christ was so much in the channel of doing His Father's will that on occasion, things happened that God sovereignly ordained to happen and Jesus didn't even... It was, he was just a conduit of the Father's will. Incredible. That's an incredible statement. It has a lot of theological implications. I mean, you can think about that all day long. The Father could heal through him before he even knew who was involved, is almost what it's saying. Now, we know God knows everything, and Jesus was God, and he knows everything, but somehow he felt this power go out, but he didn't know necessarily who it went to. See, when he said, I came to do the will of him who sent me, he really meant it. And so he says here, I felt power go out. He was touchable. He was sensitive to the one who reached out and touched him. He knew the difference between somebody who's just a thrill seeker. Let's see what miracle he does next. And somebody who's coming with a genuine, broken heart, with a deep need and a great faith. He knew the difference. 
He knows the heart to connect up with. He knows who to pull out of the crowd. You're the one. And that leads us to our fourth kind of statement here about Jesus. He was accessible. He was available. But he was also touchable. He was also impartial. Look at back at Matthew 9, verse 22. 9.22 But Jesus turned around and when he saw her look at this this choice that is just incredible. You know, I mean, Jesus could have said a lot of things that, you know, if I was Jesus, I don't think I would have said what he just is going to say here. You know, I've been in situations where I've been busy doing something. I mean, even here. Um, sometimes, I mean, even Sunday morning, sometimes we get a little behind or whatever. I'm back there and someone's trying to do something. People are trying to talk to me. I don't have a clue what you're saying. Okay, I'm just telling you. I just, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, whatever, trying to get the PowerPoint working, something. Okay? And it's almost to the point of being rude. I mean, if I was Jesus in this case and the woman grabbed a hold of me, you know, I'd probably go, get out of here. I gotta go heal this guy's daughter, for goodness sakes. What do you want? But look at how Jesus responds. It's, it's amazing to me. Verse 22. He saw her and he said, Be of good cheer. Then he says, Daughter. Daughter. You know, here's this lady who just, out of the blue, grabs a hold of his tassel. One commentator says, it's a wonder he didn't turn around and say, look, lady, don't hassle my tassel, and went on. It's kind of crazy. But he calls her daughter. Incredible. See, here's this lady who was totally ostracized from society. What's he doing? He's giving us a picture in the midst of this other miracle of raising the daughter. He's really giving a picture of what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah that he would come to preach the gospel to who? To the poor. To the downcast. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I think it was 2 Corinthians, not many mobile, not many noble, not many mighty, but he's chosen the base and the weak and the ignoble and the foolish things. That's what the word of God tells us. That's who God sovereignly chooses to use. I mean, you stop and think about it. I mean, just look around. We're kind of a motley crew, okay? It, it's, it, it, that's just the way it is. That's the way God has designed it. In one book, most of you have probably read this book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made by Brandon Yancey. He writes this, and it's, it's, it's a really good quote. He quotes from a novelist, Frederick Buchner. Here's what this novelist said. Who could have predicted that God would choose not Esau, the honest and reliable, but Jacob, the trickster and the heel? Who could have predicted that God would put his finger on Noah, who hit the bottle, or on Moses, who was trying to beat the rap? in Midian for braining a man in Egypt. If it weren't for the honor of the thing, he'd just as soon let Aaron go back and face the music. Who could have predicted that God 
would choose the prophets, who definitely were a ragged lot, mad as hatters, most of them. And then Paul Brand adds this, the exception seems to be the rule. The first humans God created went out and did everything and, and did only the only thing that God asked them not to do. The man he chose to head the new nation, known as God's people, tried to pawn off his wife on the un- unsuspecting Pharaoh. And his wife, herself, who told at the ripe age of 91 that God was ready to deliver a son he had promised to her, broke into rasping laughter in the face of God. Rahab the harlot became revered for her great faith. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, went out of his way to break every proverb he is so astutely composed. Even after Jesus, the pattern continued. The two disciples who did the most to spread the word after his departure, John and Peter, were the two he had rebuked most often for petty squabbling and muddle-headedness. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote more books than any other Bible writer, was selected for the task while kicking up dust whirls from town to town, sniffing out Christians to torture. Jesus had nerve in trusting the high-minded ideals of love and unity and fellowship to this group. No wonder cynics, cynics have looked at the church and sighed, if, if that group of people is supposed to represent God, I'll vote quickly against him. Nietzsche said his disciples will have to look more saved if I'm going to believe in their Savior. I mean, we're just kind of a, a bunch of sinners saved by God's grace. And the Bible says that we're ignoble, we're weak, and we're foolish. We have all that in common. And we have a sense of a desperate need of a Savior, and we have a faith to believe. Jesus is so impartial that way. The Bible says God is not a respecter of what? Persons. It says neither male nor female in Galatians nor Jew, nor Greek, bond or free, rich or poor, all are one. See, Jesus pulls everything to a halt to deal with this outcast woman with this issue of blood. And as he deals with her, he doesn't deal with her from a distance. He pulls her right in. He calls her daughter. I mean, there's one person in this world that I would call daughter. That's it. That's so intimate. It's so personal. It's so tender. It has so much warmth, so much affection. And he just pulls her in and he says, be of good comfort. Be comforted, daughter. What impartiality that is. And here's what he says. He says, your faith has made you well. And the woman was well from that hour. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought she was already been healed as soon as she touched his garment. Yeah, physically. She was healed the minute she touched. But when he pulled her out of the crowd, he said, there's something else that you need to experience, woman. I don't want to leave you in your superstitious thinking kind of faith that just because you touched me, that makes everything okay. Your healing didn't have anything to do with your faith. That's basically what she was, he was telling her. He was saying, that healing that you experienced, physical healing, is a sovereign act of God. It was something that God did sovereignly. It has nothing to do with your faith. 
I mean, if you look throughout the Gospels, beloved, you'll see over and over again in the record of Christ, you'll find multitudes of people who were healed. And it says nothing about whether they believed or not. That's incredible to me. Stop and think, did the little girl who was raised from the dead have faith? Doesn't say anything about it. Afraid not. How about the paralyzed servant of the centurion who was healed? Did he have no faith? No. You can go through the Gospels and you can find people after people after people who were healed and had nothing to do with their faith. Healing was a sovereign act on God's part as Jesus demonstrated his deity. And I believe that healing is still a sovereign act on God's part. But in addition to the physical healing, he said, your faith. He did not use the Greek word eomai, which means to be made physically well. He used the word sozo, which in the New Testament basically means that you were saved. He says, your faith has saved you. And she was saved from that hour on. That's how you could honestly read that passage. See, there's a sense in which she was saved from the hemorrhaging because it stopped and everything. But it has the idea of a, of a redemptive element here. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Quickly, Mark chapter 10. Because this is kind of an important point. So many times we get things mixed up and, and we don't see the scripture clearly. See, she was saved. She was healed physically as soon as she touched the garment. But when he was talking about that in Matthew, he's talking about her salvation, not her healing. In Mark chapter 10, look at verse 46. <clears throat> Mark 10, 46. It says, Now they came to Jericho as he went out of Jericho with his disciples. And there you go, a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus, sat at the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. In other words, they turned to him and said, hey, Bartimaeus, just shut up. You know, you're, you're, just, you're being disrespectful here. But he cried out all the more, the Bible says. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. So all of a sudden, he's, he's pulling this guy out of the crowd, as he's known to do. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he has called you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. Look at what it says, verse 51. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. And then he says, in verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. He uses the word sozo there. Your faith has saved you. And it says immediately, <clears throat> he received his sight, and then what did he do? He followed Jesus on the way. See, in that case, the word sozo is used to indicate not only was the man healed physically, but he also received salvation. See, there's a saving element here. His soul was important to Christ. And if he had that kind of faith, 
that was sufficient to save his soul, if he believed that the Lord was the Lord and the Son of David, well, then he received the physical healing as well. Turn over to Luke chapter 44. Or Luke chapter 7, verse 44. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. It says in verse 44, Then he, he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I, have ent- I, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. Verse 45, You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This woman demonstrated so much love and so much worship and so much respect for Christ that it brought about, really, her, her redemption. Her faith in him was so great. He forgave her sin. And it says, when those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Verse 50, then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now, same word. Is there any healing here? There's no healing. No healing at all. Turn over to, to Luke chapter 17, verse 14. You know this story of the ten lepers? Luke 17, verse 14. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And so it was as they went that they were cleansed. He just healed them. Verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed returned with a loud voice glorifying God. He fell down on his feet, giving thanks to God. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were, you, were there not ten cleansed, but only, uh, but where are the other nine? Were there not any who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, What? Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting when he talks about them being cleansed earlier on, he uses the word kartharizo, uh, which means to cleanse in, in the Greek language. And yet here, at the end, when he says, your faith has made you well, he uses the word sozo. Your faith has saved you. See, faith is not necessary for healing. It's just not. You can see it throughout Scripture. I mean, do you know people who have diseases and they get well from those diseases and they're not Christians? I do. And yet, I also know Christians who get sick and die. See, that's a sovereign thing. It's detached from our faith. I mean, sometimes in the Word, God does honor our faith in healing. He does. But always, He always honors our faith in saving. 
And that's really the message here. Jesus loved people. He was accessible. He was available. He was touchable. He was impartial. It's an illustration when the Titanic went down in 1912. When they found out about it in New York, the paper, the American, ran this headline. Here's what the headline said. John Jacob Astor, millionaire, drowns. That was the headline. You would think that maybe they would include some other people who drowned. No, they just, that was the headline. See, and that's the way it is in the world. Only the rich and the famous get the press. We see that all around us. See, that's not so with Christ. If you're learning anything from this, I I pray that you'll learn how powerful He is, how accessible He is, how available, how touchable, how impartial He is. That's how it is with God. And we'll close with this. He was also powerful. Jesus was powerful. You can deal with the first four. We said this is how Jesus relates to people and maybe we should emulate that in our lives. This last one, I can't help you with. I don't have the power of Christ. I can't raise people from the dead. I can't say be healed and you'll be healed. But look back at at Matthew 9 as we wrap this up, verse 23. You see Jesus' power. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and he saw the flute players... And the noisy crowd wailing. See, their culture is so different than ours. What's the environment when we go to a funeral home? It's somber. It's sad. You walk in, the casket up front. Nobody says anything. If you say anything, you whisper. Everything's quiet. If somebody were to drop something or make a noise, everybody, oh, shh. It's just the way it is. See, that's not their culture. I mean, when somebody died in their culture, it was like, all right, let's party. We're going to have a celebration here. Even though they were mourning, I mean, they made noise. Incredible noise. They had all these people here. They even hired people to come to make noise at a funeral. Can you imagine doing that in our country? It's disrespectful. But that's how... They lived over there. And they'd hire these professional shriekers who would come in. And they would shriek and they would wail. And it says there in verse 23, they had, they had flute players. They had all sorts of things going on. It says, basically they would rend their garments. They would tear their garments. And they had all these rules, and I'm not going to go into them because we don't have time, for tearing the garment. A woman had to take the undergarment and tear it and then turn it around so she didn't expose herself. You could tear a garment over your heart and you had to be big enough to put a fist through and you could stitch it up after seven days, but you couldn't stitch it permanently until 30 days. It's just crazy. They had all these different rules and regulations. And the second thing was the wailing. They would have these professional wailers come in and they would just hire them. And they would be trained in the family culture so that they not only were wailing over the person that was there, deceased, but they knew the history of the family. 
So they would come in and say, Oh, remember poor Charlie, Uncle Charlie, and Aunt Susie, and all these. And they would just go through the names and they would kind of reopen all these wounds. So everybody's mourning, everybody's wailing and tearing your garments. And then you had the flute players. Verse 23, the musicians. They had all kinds of flute players. And the, the, the Talmud even said that even the poorest of the poor had to have at least two flute players at a funeral. That was his regulation. And this guy was very, very, very rich. He was a ruler in the synagogue. A ruler in his community. So he probably had myriads of flute. So you can imagine Jesus coming to this thing. It's just a raucous is going on. It's crazy. One quote says in the, the Roman world that Seneca wrote that there were so many flute players playing and there was so much screaming at the death of Emperor Claudius that they felt that Claudius himself probably heard it even though he was dead. That's just the way they lived back then. That's how they did things. And so look at what he says in verse 24. He says to these all this, these bunch of people making all this racket, he says, you know what, go away, get out of here. Prince of Peace arrives. Make room. Look out. What are you doing this for? The girl's not dead. She's sleeping. Well, what do you mean by that? I thought he was going to raise her from the dead. Why would he say that she's sleeping? It says in verse 24, they laughed at his face. Why? Because they knew the statement he said was ridiculous. They knew she was dead. Everybody knows she's dead. That's why we're all here. Duh. You know, I mean, they were kind of having those that, that kind of conversation with Jesus. And what he wanted them to understand was, you know what? I understand she's dead too, but don't treat her as dead because I'm about ready to raise her from the dead. <laughs> so you can all just go outside. Get him outside. And that's what happened. But it's interesting where it says they ridiculed him. I mean, they just laughed hysterically in his face. That's another indication that they were hired hands. They were mourning. I mean, this was a funeral. They were supposed to be crying and mourning the death of these people. And as soon as Christ comes and says, hey, you know what, you guys get out of here. She's just sleeping. What do they do? Their mourning, supposed mourning, turns immediately to laughter, to ridicule, to scorn of Christ. So they had no heart connection with the person that died. They were just a hired hand. And they were mocking him as a fool, the Bible says. The other gospel accounts say that he basically says, little girl, arise, and he took her by the hand, and it's amazing. She arose. This dead girl had life breathed back into her. says he went in, took her by the hand, the girl arose. In Luke's account, it says the spirit came again, and she arose. And it also tells us that after that, her parents were just astonished. Can you imagine having one of your loved ones die and you know they're dead? And Jesus comes into the room, takes her by the hand and says, Arise, and, she, and they get up. Amazing power that Christ has. He could just say a word. But here he reached out and he touched her because he wanted to show his tenderness. He wanted to show the way that God is gentle. The way that God can be loving and affectionate. See, that's, that's what's so neat about God. When He's calling us to salvation, He doesn't drag us to Himself. 
He doesn't sit us down in a chair like a stern parent and say, you're going to believe in me or else. That's not how he does it. He just continues to reveal to you his love, his grace, his mercy. And hopefully, eventually, your heart begins to kind of soften up a little bit. And you begin to realize, well, maybe this God that I kind of put on the sidelines all these years, maybe I need to give this a second look. Maybe he really does want to make himself accessible to me and available and touchable and impartial and powerful. D.L. Moody, when he was a young man, he was called at the last minute to preach at a, at a funeral. And he didn't have anything to preach. And so he thought, you know what? I'm just going to go through the Gospels and see what Jesus said at funerals. I'll just kind of repeat what Jesus said. Well, he looked and he looked and he couldn't find anything because Jesus never attended a funeral because he always raised him from the dead. See, that's the power that Christ has. We should rejoice in death because we have conquered death. The Bible says he won't leave his holy one to see corruption. He'll show us the path of life. In his presence, the Bible says that there is fullness of joy. And that his right hand are treasures forevermore. The writer who, when he looked at a funeral, he wanted to demonstrate what a funeral was like. Arthur Brisbane so he pictured a crowd of grieving caterpillars. They're all wearing black suits. And all these caterpillars are just crawling along. They're all mourning. And they're carrying above them the corpse of a cocoon to its final resting place. These poor, distressed caterpillars, they're weeping. And above them... up above the cocoon, is fluttering around this incredibly beautiful butterfly, looking down on these caterpillars with disbelief. See, Christ gives us that kind of hope. We don't end in the grave. We have hope for eternal life if we come to him in faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, and I pray that it's ministered. I pray that wasn't my words, but your words. Lord, you know who's here this morning. For those who don't know you, maybe this is the day, Lord, that they will open up their heart to believe. For those who do, I pray that... For those that know you, may deepen their commitment to you. If you don't know Christ here this morning, I just pray that where you sit that you'll just open up your heart to Him. He wants to meet you right where you're at. He wants to forgive your sin. But you have to come with Him, come to Him with a need and faith. Invite Him to come in and save you, forgive you of your sin, show you His mercy, His grace, and salvation, to give you that ultimate victory over death. He'll do that for you this morning. Cry out to Him, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you bless it to our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.